Just a little bit of introduction to the passage that we're going to look at today in Romans. If you haven't already turned there, we're continuing in chapter 15, and hopefully we'll complete this paragraph, 14 through 21, Purposes of Paul. But introduce it, oh, I don't know, a couple of years ago, three, four, I don't remember, I lose track of time. One of the Chafer students emailed me and had some questions about ministry. And some of the questions didn't make any sense to me. And the more I discussed it, the more I realized that he really didn't understand what ministry was all about. In fact, he was under the impression uh, that ministry was only what the preacher does in front of a church. And so I had to kind of give him a little bit of a ecclesiology to share a little bit, a bigger perspective on what ministry is. And uh, anyway, that was an interesting discussion just to to realize that I guess there are people that really have no biblical concept of what ministry is all about. Now, it's a little surprising to me because I know that nearly all of you that are in our group here are at least at some level in some form of ministry, and I think most of you have a pretty good grasp on what biblical ministry is all about, but I guess some people don't, so hopefully the things that we'll talk about not only today, but what we started last Sunday will be helpful in sharing not only with people from that far extreme end, but everybody in between. And I think even church people have a misconception in a lot of areas concerning what ministry is all about. So essentially today, I will continue looking at the passage where Paul essentially lays out some of the major areas of ministry that he was involved in. And by doing that, I think he also gives us insight in terms of what ministry is all about. So I think you can draw some principles from what Paul says as he writes to the believers in the city of Rome. And it appears from that first verse in verse 14 that he senses that uh, they have a concept of, of ministry just from the compliment that he pays to them. So first of all, the passage deals with believers in the city of Rome that would have been familiar with all of these sites on the slides I'm showing you. So this is part of the conclusion of the whole book. And as we've been saying, it's the longest conclusion beginning in verse 14 all the way to the end of the uh, chapter, chapter 16. And I see at least four parts passage we're looking at, or the paragraph where Paul lays out his purposes in ministry and particularly in relationship to the Romans. And then he plans to visit them. He has other plans as well to extend the ministry all the way to to Spain even and wants to involve the Romans. So that's chapter 15, 22 through the end of 15. And as I was looking at that last part, we could even break that down even more, but uh, I'm going to leave it under the title Paul's plans. And then we have a long portion of chapter 16. In fact, the bulk of the book, 24 verses, where he has personal greetings. Apparently, he knew several people, had relationships with several people in the church at Rome. And then he concludes the book with praise. 
and worship you might include 25 through 27, the last few verses. A more typical conclusion. This is not so typical to have 47 verses, actually, of conclusion. That's almost longer. Well, it is longer than uh, books like Philemon. And uh, I don't remember the number of chapters in uh, the book of Titus, but uh, that's long in itself in a conclusion just to the book of Romans. So still kind of introducing Paul and his ministry. I uh, thought of another area that he is actually describing concerning his ministry, so I've included it. I gave you three of them. A fourth one would be Paul as prophet. And if you think of prophets, one of the main functions of prophets, not only New Testament, but particularly Old Testament, is they are writers of Scripture. And Paul, in chapter 15, says, But I have written very boldly to you on some points. So Paul, as a writer of the book of Romans that was inspired, and we would say inerrant, we could classify Paul as a prophet and having a ministry, prophetic ministry. And when we think of prophecy, it is more revelation. In other words, God's revelation of which the scriptures come from him, and we believe that all of them are a revelation. In fact, when you think of prophecy, don't think so much about predictions. That's only a minor part of prophetic writings. The book of Genesis would be considered a product of the prophet. Moses considered himself a prophet. Joshua, the books of Samuel, the book of Kings, those are the historical prophets, the product of historical prophets. So one of the main functions of a prophet is to record and to write down revelation. So Paul as a prophet, Paul as a priest, that's pretty explicit in 16. In fact, he uses two words to describe his ministry as a priest. Using Old Testament imagery, even though we made the comment that Paul is not a priest in the, either the Levitical or the Old Testament sense. He's not of the right tribe. He had to be of the tribe of Levi. He was not a Levite. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. But in the New Testament, all believers have a ministry of a priesthood. And in that sense, Paul certainly viewed himself from that perspective. So he describes that in verse 16. He also describes himself as a proclaimer, and particularly a proclaimer of the gospel. So he was a preacher, proclaimer, however you want to describe that, 17 through 19. And we'll get into that a little bit more today. And then we'll get into Paul as a pioneer. And that's how you can view all of the apostles. They were pioneers in that they spread the gospel in various places. So just to alliterate, I call him a pioneer rather than an apostle, but I'm talking about the same function and same ministry. So Paul describes his ministry as one of a prophet, as a priest, a proclaimer, and a pioneer. And from that, we can draw principles in terms of ministry in general that are applicable to anyone in any time frame. And that's what uh, I intend to do. Now, if you got the outline sheet, I've got 12 
insights, you might say, or 12 uh, principles that we could describe the essence of ministry. Now, these are not every principle, uh, but just from this passage, there's at least 12, if not more. So I did add that one that I mentioned last time that I kind of went over in terms of grace. So we'll get into that in a moment. So in this conclusion of God's righteousness, we have the purposes of Paul, and he starts with a purpose of commending the Romans, and it's very high praise. And one of the main things that he praises is that they have the ability to admonish and or to counsel. That's a form of ministry. And he acknowledges that they're involved in that. They have the capability, and the implication is is they're in fact, functioning in that capacity. So concerning you, my brethren, and myself also, I'm convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness. In other words, that's more their nature, their character, their godliness, full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, gnosis. And we're talking about biblical knowledge here. We're talking about truth. So they are grounded in the word, grounded in truth. And they have the ability to not only know it, but apparently they are communicating it. And from that foundation, from their character and their grounding, they're also able to admonish one another. So there's mutual ministry going on within the body at Rome or within the churches at Rome. There were many of them. And this is the main thing that he's commending them. So that's the first thing that he commends. And we could say from that Paul is acknowledging, and there's lots of other passages that indicate that if we are, if you are a believer, in other words, whoever has a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, a personal relationship, and knows him, part of the package of knowing him, part of being blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, like Ephesians 1.3 tells us, Part of that package is that now we are all in the ministry. In other words, we are part of what God is doing in the world, and we have an important function, an important part. So the minister, unlike that one student I mentioned, who thought simply of somebody that went to seminary, and that was one of his hesitations, is he says, I, I want to take courses and I want to learn more about the Bible, but I don't want to, I don't think I'm qualified. I don't think I can be in ministry. So I had to inform him that it's not a matter of him wanting, it's a matter of him knowing that in fact he is in ministry because all believers in some way are in ministry. Question is not whether we are in the ministry, the question is whether or not we are faithful to the part that God has given us in terms of functioning in the capacity that he has has allotted to us in accomplishing things in the world. So a very important principle that all believers are actually in the ministry, and this is at least implied in verse 14. Then he gets into the main purpose that he's drawing in this paragraph, the purpose for writing And we looked at the specifics beginning verse 15, but I have written very boldly to you on some points so as to remind you. So he's reminding them of things that they know in their grounding. They're familiar with soteriology, which is the doctrine of salvation, which is at the heart of the book of Romans. 
So he's not writing because they are not already familiar. And part of what he's doing, I think, is organizing thoughts and presenting a theological perspective on this whole doctrine, moving step by step, even though they're familiar probably with virtually everything Paul is saying, he's organizing them for the, for them to have as an inspired doctrine. And there might be some misunderstanding in some areas that perhaps this teaching would be correcting. But it's a reminder. We made a big point of it. And uh, we've stated that in ministry, it's, it's always because the nature of man, the nature of us as believers, we need reminding. We need reinforcing. We need constant going over the same material, particularly the fundamentals, particularly the basis of all of Christian theology and doctrine. So reminders are needed, and that's exactly what Paul is doing. That's what Peter does. What he says in Second Peter, book of Deuteronomy, is a reminder to the children of Israel. I mentioned that. So there's always a need to remind believers concerning what Christianity, in our case, is all about what the Bible is all about, and in this case, what ministry is all about. And the last part of that verse, verse 15, so as to remind again, because of the grace that was given me from God, and I added this last time, I didn't include it on our list here, but now I'm going to put it in here in verse 15 as well. All ministry is by grace. This acknowledges that God doesn't need us. God is self-existent in every area. He doesn't need us for fellowship. He doesn't need us as objects of love. He doesn't need us for anything. And really, the, the, the question is, why does God even desire to have a relationship with us? But not only does he have a desire, but and it's all by grace. It's simply because this is what God is all about in terms of grace. But even ministry itself is a gift. It's a gracious act. God could certainly, because he has no needs, he didn't need an evangelist. He brought Paul to his knees and into a saving relationship with virtually no evangelist present. And God could do that to every single individual if he so desired. And his Holy Spirit could convict and bring people to an understanding of the gospel without us, without a gospel tract, without, without virtually anything. But by grace, he has chosen to involve us. So it's a privilege. It's, a, it's an honor to be a part of what God is doing, not only in our community here, but what God is doing throughout the whole world. So ministry is by, by grace. And verse 17, or 16 rather, he describes this ministry to be a, a minister of Christ to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest, and he's very specific, kind of exposing some of his giftedness in that passage. And uh, from the detail, I think we can draw some conclusions concerning giftedness which is not explicit in this passage, but we have passages like uh, even the same book, Romans 12, that tells us, this is one of the passages in the New Testament that expounds upon this idea of giftedness. And in the context, it tells us that everyone has a gift as well. The Ephesians 4 passage, the 
1 Corinthians 12 through 14 passages talk about giftedness and putting all the pieces together. I believe all of us have spiritual gifts, obviously, through the Holy Spirit. And as Bill pointed out, manifestations of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, 7. So it's important to communicate to especially younger believers or any believer that is unaware of this whole area of spiritual gifts, to inform them and encourage them to begin functioning. And even without knowing, we can function. And as we function, God can make us aware of any giftedness that he has already bestowed upon us. So ministry is not done by that one person up front. It's done by the whole community of believers, and one person is totally inadequate to be able to do all that God desires, even within one small body of even, let's say, 20, 30 people, of which some of the churches at Rome were probably even smaller than that, and certainly we're aware, and I've been involved in a small church before, and one person can't do it even amongst small numbers. And what I'm talking about is the the full range of all that God wants to accomplish. It takes the giftedness of every individual. Now, if you think about it, when the book of Acts talks about in the first century, the early church essentially turned the Roman Empire upside down. That's kind of the descriptive phrase that Luke gives in the, the book of Acts. And if you think about it, Rome by itself had millions of people, or at least a million is one of the estimates I've seen. That was in the first century. So several million people in the Roman Empire. Can you imagine 12 men attempting to reach that many? I think the only way that that was possible and that happened, certainly the Holy Spirit was moving in an active way, obviously, But I think people had the sense of giftedness, and people were ministering in their gifts. And in fact, even Paul, he stayed very short periods of time in the various places. We're going to see that later on in the passage, a little summary of of the extent of his ministry. And there's no way that Paul by himself could have ministered to all those people. He left people back in churches that I think ministered to one another within their gifts. Certainly there were leaders, and leaders were to develop these gifted individuals such that they would be grounded and such that they would be able to minister. So knowing one's gift is an extremely important aspect of ministry and the concept. And unfortunately, in our culture, and I'm talking about the church culture, We've kind of lost sight of that. We've minimized the importance of each and every individual and the area that God wants to use each and every one. But I know you all are aware of this and you all are functioning in your gift. And some of you may even be vague, but you know what area God has opened up for you and you are actively involved in it. So that's the purpose of writing or the principles that we can draw from Paul's little passage, 15 and 16, that uh, we have several other verses left, a purpose for Gentiles. Now, this is kind of a main theme in Romans, and this is kind of the main teaching 
but we can also, from this main teaching, draw some principles as well. Therefore, in Christ, in fact, we looked at this passage, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting. We spent some time talking about boasting last time. I'm not going to go into much detail. There's a self-centered boasting that is not a good thing and actually sin. But most of us think that all boasting is not good. But Paul uses this concept often, actually, more so than any other writer. And things pertaining to God, that actually glorifies God and is not sin. In fact, it is encouraged, and Paul is a good example of one, and particularly in this passage, and we looked at a couple of other passages. We won't go back to them. So in verse 17, the key here is boasting in the things pertaining to God. In other words, what God has accomplished, and Paul is boasting for what God has done through him, He's not minimizing what he was involved in, but uh, things pertaining to God, the proclamation of the gospel, the converts, the founding of churches, and the work that God is accomplishing. That's praiseworthy. In other words, God gets the glory. And then in verse 18, for I will not presume to speak of anything. He's expanding on that boasting here. The four, it connects it back to verse 17 will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And I spent some time kind of looking at that. Christ is the one that accomplishes ministry, but he has been pleased. And we saw uh, through by grace, he's been pleased by grace to accomplish things using us through us. And we talked about God's ministry, and we looked up, I think, virtually all those passages that emphasize that the ministry is what God is accomplishing, not what any one individual or one pastor, but what God is accomplishing on a very broad basis. And it also involves us through me. And then just one little phrase at the end there in verse 19, I have fully presented, in other words, Paul is fully involved and has fully presented the gospel of Christ. So Paul is actively involved in the the work and in the ministry, but we recognize that it's the empowerment that we receive from the Holy Spirit. In fact, the first part of verse 19 is going to emphasize that. The idea, God is the one that has the ministry, and he's the one that accomplishes it, but he also desires to accomplish it through us. So We are simply instruments in the ministry, and uh, it's a blessing to to know that God will use us. In fact, one of the greatest blessings that I think all of you would share would be those occasions where God has used you to bring another individual into a saving relationship. That's kind of a real obvious blessing, but anytime that you minister, there's always the blessing of knowing, especially if you're functioning in the power of the Holy Spirit, knowing that God is accomplishing certain things. And sometimes feedback helps us to be reminded that uh, God has used us. And we looked last time by word and deed. And I think this little phrase, let's take a closer look at it. Would somebody look up Luke 24, 19? And this is an interesting passage. I think 
if you uh, kind of look at all of these, somebody else look up Acts 7.22 and someone Colossians 3.17. Anyone want to volunteer for those? I've got Luke 24.19. Okay, it this sounds like Bill. And Steve, got Acts. Steve's got Acts. And anyone else there? Well, while somebody's, well, uh, Bill is reading Luke 24.19. And I want you to notice something in that passage. And what I think it this little phrase, by word and deed, the thing that I'm drawing as a principle, I think it includes the things that we speak along with the way that we live. In other words, how we live, the actions that we take. And I think they need to be in sync we don't want to be people that just simply spout biblical principles, but we want to live them out as well. So I summarize that little phrase by personal integrity, and that's very important in ministry. Now, all of us are working on that. In other words, you don't wait until you arrive. You continually work on it, but to the extent that we accomplish some integrity, I think that enhances and makes the the ministry that we're involved in more effective. But uh, notice it's a descriptive phrase of someone in Luke 24, 19. You got that one, Bill? Yes. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, the things about Jesus, the Nazarene, who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, in the sight of God and all the people. Okay. Jesus is in view. And using the same phrase, it's a descriptive word of Jesus himself. So, by word and deed is Christ-likeness. Now, he's the ultimate, obviously, but his life matched his preaching, you might say. He walked the walk, not just talked the talk, some have said today. Now, that's in the context of after the resurrection, Jesus appears to the two Emmaus travelers, and Jesus is talking to them, and this is their description of Jesus. So he was known for personal integrity, and actually it was a powerful thing, as the text indicates. Let's see, Steve, you got Acts 7.22, and Sandy's got her mic open, I think. Sandy, you got Colossians 3.17? I do. Okay. Steve, go ahead and read Acts 7.22. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. There you go. So one of the heroes of faith, one of the most important characters of the Old Testament, shows Christ-like characteristics in that his life matched his words as well, Acts 7.22. So a little phrase used of Moses, used of Jesus, used of Moses. And Sandy, Colossians 3.17, this is to the church at Colossae, so this involves believers. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Okay, so it's actually an exhortation and given to the church. So it's given to us. And in the context of Romans 15, in the context of Paul's ministry, it's a description of his ministry as well. And 
resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. In other words, that little phrase in terms of personal integrity, our, our life should match the things that we communicate. So we can draw that as an important element that we need to continually work on and continually develop Christ-like characteristics, not simply try to communicate without them. And this is pretty much where we left off last time. Then we have another interesting little passage here in verse 19, the beginning of it. In fact, he has kind of a long list here. What Christ has accomplished through me, first of all, resulting, there's a result, and the result deals with the Gentiles, and that was Paul's primary field of ministry. God gave him a particular mission to the Gentiles, and now he describes it in the power of signs and wonders. That's an interesting uh, little description there. Now that takes us back. If you read the book of Acts, you're going to see that uh, the Holy Spirit empowered Paul, much like he had prior to Paul empowered Peter and the other apostles to perform signs and wonders. So the question is, and what kind of a principle can we draw today? And this gets into that area that I think we discussed a little bit when we were talking about chapter 12, when we were talking about spiritual gifts. And uh, some of the gifts were miraculous gifts. And certainly Paul had uh, a display of them. And there's lots of examples in the book of Acts that we could see where Paul displayed the power of signs and wonders. So anyone want to suggest what kind of a principle might we draw from this? Maybe I should preface it by another... It's on your list, Ray. It's God's confirmation of the message. Ah, you already know the list. <laughs> okay. So let, let's comment a little bit on this signs and wonders. Now, there are two positions, two major positions concerning the ongoing giftedness, you might say, or the ongoing abilities as church history unfolds. There's a cessationist viewpoint that says these miraculous gifts, such as those that you see Paul and Peter and the apostles in the first century, have ceased. That's why it's called cessationist. They have ceased in the first century, and a passage in 1 Corinthians 13 is used as support of that. And then there's another viewpoint that basically says that God could give whatever gift at any point in his sovereign plan, and miraculous gifts have not necessarily ceased. Now, the ones that are primarily in view are these miraculous ones. In other words, the ability to perform miracles. Now, I've always wanted that gift, but not sure that I've ever received it. But this, in some circles, is a, is a controversial area. So let's make some comments that kind of, I think, give some guidance on that. Any comments on, uh, I'm not sure where all of you are. Uh, I think most of our circle of friends would be cessationists. Those that are very conservative, those that are dispensational, I guess you could say, fundamentalists, 
most of us are cessationists. Personally, I'm kind of an exception. And, and by the way, most of Chafer Seminary people are cessationists in that they see these signs and wonders as ended in the first century. Personally, I don't want to limit God, and I think God can give whatever gifts he wants at any point. Now, given that, I think that there are periods of time when there are an abundance of signs and wonders and miracles and powers. All four of those words are used to describe these miraculous gifts, the gifts of raising the dead, the gifts of miraculous healings and other miracles. And you can see this in scripture. In other words, most of the time, as time elapsed biblically, there are not signs and wonders. Wouldn't discount that God, you know, in an isolated place might do something unusual and miraculous even. And and I would say even in our age. But biblically, during the time of Moses, you have an abundance of signs, particularly the plagues, all of those plagues that came were miraculous. And even preceding that, God did some miraculous things. The parting of the Red Sea was a miraculous act, unusually miraculous. The time of Jesus, lots of, well, Elijah first, Elijah and Elisha, they were characterized by miraculous abilities as well and had seemingly abilities to perform miracles. In the time of Christ, certainly, and during the book of Acts, there's lots of examples, including Paul himself. But I think in general, signs and wonders are, they have a particular purpose, not to say, that's why I'm not a cessationist, not to say that God cannot do them at any point. I think he can in some isolated places. In fact, I've heard of legitimate ones on the mission field and in other places, even here in uh, our country. But in general, God uses them for a particular purpose. So let's kind of talk a little bit about that. Was somebody going to make a comment there? Sharon? Uh, yes, I, I read reports from India, especially that uh, where people are prayed for and become get well very quickly. Um, in a miraculous way, right? signs and wonders at all, but um, uh, after praying intensely, my niece, who had uh, terminal recurrence of uh, brain cancer and spinal cancer, and and this is documented, by the way, she was nine, uh, and uh, they, you know, they put her on hospice care anyway, Um, it was like God letting me know she doesn't have it anymore, and so I urged her mom to go in. And they called her into downtown L.A. with the whole team and apologized. 
for putting her on hospice care, but they had the before and after a CT and an MRI um, of the spine, a CT of the brain, um, and it was gone. Yeah, well. completely. And it was like immediately, you know, because she was walking upstairs. Um, and so I know God had healed her. Yeah. Well, you know, but as far as me having any power <laughs> or uh, for that, uh, yeah, I, I beg to, you know, differ with that. I think God was answering their prayers. Right. Yeah. 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 One of the points I'm, I'm trying to make here is these special periods where signs and wonders were very evident. They had a purpose of confirmation primarily. Certainly they relieved the pain and the suffering, particularly the healing miracles. But the main purpose was to confirm, and Moses needed confirmation in the period of Moses. And uh, the children of Israel needed to see that Moses, that God was very evidently working and changing in order to get them to really follow him and to confirm who he was in order for them to begin the process of starting their, their nation there. So there was a need for God to confirm his instruments. And similarly with Elijah and Elisha, and certainly Jesus. In fact, Jesus makes the point that these demonstrate that he is, in fact, the son of God. So when we have signs, and particularly in the Gospel of John, the word there, semion, signs, they point to spiritual truth. Now, the word miracles or powers are used in all of the other Gospels, but in John's Gospel, he uses the word samion, which is signs, and it's translated signs. And in his Gospel, the miracles are called signs. And if you study them in conjunction with some of the claims of Christ, you're going to see a close correlation. Even the first miracle, it's not as clear But I think that first introductory miracle, in fact, somebody look up John 2, and I think it's 11, and notice what that says. Who wants to do that? You got got it there, uh, Maddie? Um, Or you have a comment? Yeah, I just wanted to, when you're done, I wanted to make a little apologetic add-on. Okay. Um, But I do have 2.11. Okay, read 2.11, and then maybe... If it's the time to do your apologetic add-on. Okay. 2.11, down 2.11. All right. This beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Okay. This sign is associated and it's early in the ministry to confirm to the disciples that what he has already claimed concerning his messianic claims are in fact legitimate. In other words, it confirms that he in fact is the Messiah and the text tells us his disciples believed in him. And if you follow through the Gospel of John, you can tie some of the claim or all of the claims to some of the miracles that John records. For example, he claims to be the bread of life. In other words, he is the source of real nourishment, spiritual life, spiritual nourishment. And then what does he do to confirm it? What is the sign that he does? Feeding of the 5,000. Yep, 
the feeding of the 5,000. Okay. I'll let some of you give me, give me a couple more, a couple more of the miracles tied to the claims or vice versa, the claims and then the miracles. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And then he raises Lazarus from the dead. And then he raises himself from the dead. Okay. Which is the kind of the culminating main yes. sign. ultimate the, sign. The, exactly. It's the seventh sign in John. Okay. Now, what was your add on comment is, was that wasn't it? Yeah. Well, no, that wasn't it. Thank you for asking. I just wanted to say that. Um, okay. See, I had it and now it's all gone. <laughs> the, the, the hyper charismatic movement, basically, um, if you're familiar or unfamiliar, say that signs and wonders are a normative part of the Christian life, and they end up making the signs ends in and of themselves, rather than pointing back to the truth of God's word. Um, so... We just need to be careful. Um, I wouldn't deny that God still takes the prerogative to verify his word by signs, especially in places where the gospel is going out. Um, but I wouldn't, I, I think it's very dangerous. Um, and I'm not saying that anybody in this study would think this, but there's a widespread misunderstanding that signs would be normative for the Christian life. And I don't, I don't see that in scripture. Yeah. I don't see that as being the case. Right. And I would, I would agree with that. And to add on to what Sharon said, I think every single one of the gifts can be counterfeited. And today, one of the areas of counterfeit is in this area. And I think that's what you're alluding to as well. Um, absolutely. Um, in fact, uh, counterfeited Jesus, by, counterfeated by sorry. Satan. Sorry. Go yeah, abso absolutely. And, um, and I always found it really puzzling when Jesus says in that day, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do signs in your name? Did we not do miracles? Did we not cast out demons? Yep. And Jesus says, I tell you, I will say to them, um, I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness. Um, and I never understood that until I started researching the new apostolic reformation and hyper, the hyper charismatic movement. Um, so anyway, for what it's worth. Great. No, good comment. Yeah. So signs point to spiritual truth. And the biggest example are the miracles in John. I started to say, Virtually every gift can be counterfeited. There are false teachers. There are false prophets. And all of these are noted in the Bible. False apostles. And certainly I would say there are false uh, signs and false gifts of miracles and that sort of thing. And false tongues. I think there's a counterfeit tongues as well. So all of these you need to be careful. And as Maddie's pointing out, that the church in general, in some segments of the church that emphasize these, you need to be very careful in those areas. And again, that does not mean that I discount all of them. I think God can do that. So signs point to spiritual truth and wonders arouse amazement and uh, allow the 
observer to be able to recognize that this is not normal. This is this is from God, but you also have to have that discernment to realize what is genuine and what is not. And I was going to have us look up these passages, but basically Jesus performed signs and wonders, Acts 2.22. In fact, Peter in his sermon is describing the ministry of Christ as one of signs and wonders and the, the disciples in 5.12 also. And then in another passage, 2 Corinthians 12.12, 12, Paul himself describes uh, his ministry as one of signs and wonders and powers or miracles. I can't remember. There's three things that I think he includes there, but I'll let you just jot them down and we'll move on. Anyway, more time on it than probably we needed. But anyway, I think the main principle that we can draw is when God, in fact, works in your life in ministry, I think he will confirm it, not necessarily with signs and wonders, but I think you'll get feedback and uh, you'll get a sense of the Lord, in fact, using you. And if you're privileged to see somebody come to Christ, then that's one of the biggest things that you'll be able to see. But also, you know, people will, will say, well, that, you know, that, that was very helpful. I mean, that encouraged me or that strengthened me or that gave me a new insight as you are sharing or ministering to people. Then we have another thing, probably one of the most important areas is the power of the Holy Spirit. So not only did Paul have the ability to perform signs and wonders, but the main thing is the power of the Holy Spirit. And this goes along with the idea of the ministry belonging to and the ministry being of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that is doing it. We are simply instruments, but as instruments, we need the enablement of the Holy Spirit. And that also warns us that if we are in the flesh, we're probably not accomplishing anything eternal or long-lasting. So the very important area of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And then this last little phrase, so that from Jerusalem... And roundabout, as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now, from Jerusalem, now, there's a lot of discussion in some of the commentaries about this. And I think it's clear from the book of Acts, Paul didn't start his ministry in Jerusalem. So he's not saying that I started my ministry in Jerusalem and ended it in Illyricum. In fact, there's no mention anywhere else of Illyricum in the book of Acts or anywhere else. This is the only verse that has that location. So what is Paul saying there? In fact, some of you can tell me, where did Paul begin his ministry? Where he first received salvation. And where was that? Damascus. Damascus. In fact, in Acts chapter 9, you have a little passage or a couple of little passages that indicate that that he, in fact, ministered almost immediately after he was converted. Now, you know, they took him there and he had some ministry to him, but he began to proclaim the gospel immediately. An example of a baby Christian already ministering. So the starting point was not Jerusalem, but in fact, Damascus. In fact, it wasn't until much later in the book of Acts that he actually does, in fact, minister in Jerusalem. So why do you think he says from Jerusalem 
And then he says roundabout, which that's easier to understand. But why does he begin with Jerusalem? Because that's where he got his verification. That might be part of it. I was thinking that the temple is there, you know, in the center of the, the where the Jewish thinkers and movers are. Yeah, yeah, I think that's part. I think that's part of the reason in that. Uh, remember, he's writing. Remember, a major emphasis of the Book of Romans is the composition of the church and the ministry between the the Jews and the Gentiles. I think he's alerting to the Jews that yes, I had a ministry in Jerusalem. It wasn't the starting point. In fact, they may be familiar with the Book of Acts, although the Book of Acts wouldn't have been written yet. But they might have had reports of Paul's journeys and and ministry. But I think he's identifying this is the beginning of Christianity, and I had a part in a ministry at the very heart and soul of the beginning of Christianity in Jerusalem, and then uh, to Illyricum, in other words, the furthest extent. Do you remember, and, and he's not also saying that I ministered from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum as if that was one journey. In fact, when he says roundabout, I think he's indicating what he has done to that point, and where was he at that point in his ministry now that he's writing to Rome? I think there's a large geographical arc that he's talking about that will extend from uh, Jerusalem to, if you drew the arc, all the way to uh, Macedonia and Philippi, and then just north of that, he would have gone into Illyricum, even if he just went to the southern section. It includes what's basically now uh, Yugoslavia, just above what's basically now. Okay, back to, uh, back to the question. Macedonia. Back to the question. Where was Paul at this point when he's writing the Book of Romans? Was he in Corinth? Yeah. Yeah. And do you remember which missionary journey? If he's in Corinth, he can probably... Second? Hmm? Second. Not quite. First? No. Let's go for... Let's go with third. I... Yes. Third for $500? Third. <laughs> yeah, Steve, you owe uh, Maddie $500. <laughs> yeah, third missionary journey and... <laughs> And essentially, if you look at the geography here, this is kind of the almost the last stop in the third missionary journey. And actually from Corinth, he's going to start to backtrack. I think he ends in Ephesus, and then he's going to talk about going back to Jerusalem over here. But uh, he's recognizing that he has he's not going to make it to Rome. I think he probably intended maybe to go from Corinth to Rome, and then maybe take a ship and go back to Jerusalem. I mean, we, we don't, that's speculation. But at least he's, he's writing the book of Romans from Corinth. And personally, I think, because he knows he's not, he's run out of time is essentially what he's talking about. And he's not going to make it to Rome. So the next best thing is to write them a letter. And in the letter, we're going to see in the next paragraph that he plans to visit them at, at that stage. So when he says from Jerusalem, he's basically saying from the starting point of Jerusalem all the way to the furthest extent that I have ministered. And this area in here, in fact, I have another slide, is essentially the area of the third missionary journey. 
that is preceded by the first two missionary journeys. And there's no record of him arriving here, but it makes sense that maybe perhaps when he was in Berea, which is right over here, and somewhere in there, he may have gone to the southern part of this Illyricum, which is across from Italy and basically modern-day Albania, I guess, and uh, some of those, uh, I can't remember all those uh, countries now that occupy that area. And when he says roundabout, he's not saying a direct, but as I am ministering around about all of these areas, I at least made it to this furthest nor- northern extent of the geography of that day. So let me just give you another map. Now, this red line is the journey to Rome when he was arrested. It's not a missionary journey, but this is the area here of the third missionary journey, the second missionary journey, and actually the, let's see, the first missionary journey is in the Galatian area. And then the second missionary journey extends to this area in here. Ray, I have a question. Go ahead. So might Paul's reference to uh, talking about ministry from Jerusalem to Illyricum uh, relate to Jesus' words in Acts 1.8 about my witness, or you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Yeah, that's part of it. But if you remember also, it's not shown on this map, but Paul, we're going to find out in the next paragraph, he wants to visit Rome and he wants to go all the way to the extent off of the, the screen here, off the map, all the way to Spain. Damn. So I think Jesus' words were in reference to not only Spain, but there was some people that occupied Britain at that time and certainly the area of Germany, in other words, Europe, the European area. Yeah. Uh, so Jesus, I think. So Jesus, I think, is speaking to greater extent than simply Illyricum. Right. I was just wondering if he was referencing that Jesus was talking about Jerusalem kind of being the epicenter yes. of the. Absolutely. Battle. Yeah, and at that stage, absolutely. In fact, Jesus didn't minister too far away from Jerusalem, actually. Anyway, that the last verse here, I have fully preached, and we'll stop here. I've actually gone a little bit further than I intended, and, or time-wise. I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Now, again, as an instrument, he was involved. He did the preaching, and he did it to the full extent. And you might say both geographically, as it's in that context of geography, but also in terms of the opportunities that the Lord gave him in terms of the ministry that he opened up. So not only do we need to minister in the power of the Holy Spirit, but I think ministry, we need to view it long-term, and we need to view it uh, in terms of thoroughness. And there's lots of other examples. If we had time, we could see how Paul ministered thoroughly not only geographically, he had a world mindset, but even the book of Romans gives you a hint of the thoroughness of Paul in in his ministry, in that this is 
a great detail, in fact, the most detailed book in terms of theology. So there was a certain amount of thoroughness, and this is something that uh, we need to think in terms of as well. Not a scattered, not a intermittent, but a very thorough commitment to the work that God has given us. Well, that's probably the best place to stop for now. We'll pick up. I've got a couple more that we can look at. Focus of the Great Commission and kind of going back to that very first principle that we talked about in terms of everyone being involved and the concept of the body ministering not only to itself, but ministering in terms of the the lost world. But that gets us into the next few verses there. So we can sharpen our ministry with insights from Paul's ministry. Go ahead and pray. Let's do it. Thank you, Jesus, for the teaching on signs and wonders. Father God, we thank you for the uh, ministries that you've given us, Lord God, and the doctrine of ministry, Lord God. We just thank you for Ray taking time out to teach with class in Jesus' holy name. And we just look forward to a wonderful new week. Hallelujah. Amen. Father, uh, I agree with that. Thank you for uh, your inspired word that you give us so many examples of, for instance, Paul, how hard he worked, yet he considered it all for your glory. And we thank you that we do have an example like that in your word. Uh, And we just praise you for that. And thank you so much for all that you do. Pray for those that are ill and sick. We have some local here that are one on uh, his deathbed, mm-hmm. and uh, we just pray for Glenn. We've seen miracles happen, and we know that you're sovereign. You're always working, and nothing uh, goes by you unnoticed. You're in control, and we do thank you for that, and that's so reassuring. And Thank you so much.